Today, we have on Dr. Matthew Hicks to talk about psychedelic therapies, mental health, and the role of naturopathic healing within these areas. Um, welcome to the Herbal Hour podcast. Thank you. So to start off, can you tell the audience a little bit about how you found yourself on this very interesting path? Yeah. So for me, let's see, how far back do I go? I uh, always was attracted to uh, solving big picture problems, <laughs> I guess. And at some point, uh, as a young person trying to decide a career for myself, I, uh, I, I got attracted to natural medicine. At first, I didn't uh, even know naturopathic medicine existed. So I, I started off in chiropractic school. Uh, but I, I dropped out as soon as I learned about the existence of naturopathic medicine mm. while I was there and uh, jumped ship. And, uh, and then, you know, what, what happened over time is I, I was in a, a romantic partnership at the time where uh, my partner had some, some mental health stuff going on, which she didn't recognize uh, as, as mental health. It was somatic things were coming up. Her, her physical health would sort of... Uh, degrade as her stress levels went up. And I noticed this and, and saw this like firsthand that the mind and the body were connected, right? And I found that to be uh, fascinating and also very difficult to, uh, to live with uh, in, in, a, in a partner and that, that, you know, eventually ended. But that was sort of uh, my, where my interest originated. And then uh, so throughout the course of, uh, you know, med school, I knew that I wanted to uh, specialize in mental health. I, I did, uh, from the beginning, I was in a, also in a, a master's program for medical research. And my, my projects that I did there, uh, I did one project in mindfulness um, for, as, a, as sort of a, a, an open placebo almost. I mm. uh, became really interested in the placebo effect and how, uh, you know, that's, that's sort of the the accusation made at a lot of alternative medicines that it's all a placebo. And I thought like, well, even if it were a placebo, why shouldn't we like maximize that if, if it helps? And, and so I, I started to think of like, well, meditation sort of is a way of intentionally changing uh, your mindset about something. And, and it's so in that sense, it's sort of like an open placebo. And, and, you know, David Kapchuk's study came out about, uh, you know, where, where they were treating IBS with a placebo, an open placebo. They were telling people the placebo and it still worked. And I just found that fascinating. So I did a study uh, or a secondary data analysis with some uh, research at Oregon Health Science University there. And that got published on the expectancy effects in uh, some mind-body uh, trials. And uh, that, that was interesting to me. And then I went on to do um, my thesis work in a, on empathy and burnout in medical students, uh, specifically naturopathic medical students. And I uh, really enjoyed that process. And uh, also while in, in those two programs, I, for a while I was in a, a third master's program in mental health. And I got through about, um, I don't know, about a third of that program uh, before I, I realized that uh, I didn't really need to have three graduate degrees to do what I wanted to do. <laughs> right. And, uh, and in fact, it was, it was maybe a, a slightly a detriment to my, to my own well-being. So I, I dropped out of that program, but I, I learned a lot of good things from it. And uh, it was a good program and, and learned some good counseling skills and, and whatnot.
Um, and then somewhere in the mix there, I uh, at a Grand Rounds le- lecture uh, given by Erica Zelfand, another fantastic naturopath. She she gave a Grand Rounds lecture on summarizing psychedelic uh, research mm-hmm. in there, and ha- already having this interest in mental health, kind of thinking like, okay, how how do I specialize in mental health? How am I going to do this? And then she gave that, and you know that was like news to me. This was you know before Michael Pollan's book came out. Before I mean, it was like it was out there in the world. Uh, but it was, I hadn't caught on to it yet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so that, that blew my mind. I, I was, you know, a just say no kid, goody, goody growing up, never touched any drugs whatsoever. And, uh, so I, I became fascinated. I went to the maps conference in Oakland in 2017 and, uh, just kept reading and reading and reading. I've gone to like four other conferences since then. Um, and it sort of culminated in me uh, applying and getting into, and now I'm about halfway through the uh, psychedelic uh, assisted therapy training program at the California Institute of Integral Studies. And, uh, and like we were talking, I uh, am rolling out a ketamine assisted psychotherapy clinic here in Portland uh, that will start in maybe late June, early July mm. is when we're hoping to have a physical location. So yeah, that, uh, that about brings, brings it up to, uh, to current times. So you mentioned something about the, uh, placebo effect, which I find very interesting that, um, typically alternative practices, uh, are labeled as, oh, well, that's just the placebo effect. Even if the results show that it actually benefited the patient, it's kind of, you know, taken out of the data as, oh, well, that's just the placebo effect. But, um, I too was was and still am very interested in studying that like in and of itself as a phenomenon that we don't understand and trying to uh, harness it. And this comes into the conversation of psychedelic therapies because a lot of the tradition of use of psychedelics have to do also with the ritual aspect. So the practitioner Actually, it's interesting in those traditions because the practitioner themselves takes the psychedelic and then they, um, you know, they do uh, some kind of ritual incantation. Um, whereas in these times, a lot of the psychedelic experience is a personal thing that you, the patient themselves goes through it. So there's kind of differing opinions on who's actually supposed to take the psychedelic in the mm-hmm. ritual therapy. I'm sure you've heard of those, mm-hmm. um, those aspects. So how do you think the placebo effects can be utilized for healing or what have you learned about the placebo effect? Cause that's kind of this catch all. Yeah. yeah. So to say a little bit more about, uh, the study that I did, um, was, I, I we did three, it was based off data, pre-existing data from three clinical trials. Uh, one was veterans with PTSD, another was healthy older adults, um, and then the third one was older adults who were uh, caregivers for people with dementia, so a very stressed out group of people. And they all went through MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, mm-hmm. which is a very regimented um, mindfulness protocol that's uh, given over the course of like eight weeks. And the, the data I did was, was pretty simple. There was a lot more involved in all those trials. Uh, but what I did is they, I looked at this expectancy questionnaire they were given before they entered the study. And it was basically uh, questions like, 
do you think this therapy works? Do you feel like this therapy works? Would you recommend it to a friend? Uh, do you expect it to work for you? And, and so it kind of gave us the, you know, a, a Likert scale of, of how optimistic versus uh, skeptical they were about going through this. And, and then I just did a simple correlation analysis with their perceived outcomes afterwards. So it's like, are you less stressed? Are you, you know, more, uh, you know, peaceful or calm or whatever? It's, it's been a while. I don't remember the exact uh, terms we used. But, um, and what we found was that there was actually no correlation. And what's interesting about that is in a, in a normal study, if you were just doing a, I don't know, a blood pressure medication, right? Um, you're going to get a slight placebo effect. People think they're taking a pill that's going to lower their blood pressure. Maybe that alleviates some of their worries and their blood pressure goes down just because of the psychological. But uh, in this case, part, part of my interest in going into it was that meditation is all about changing uh, your mindset, right? It's being mindful, whereas uh, the opposite of mindfulness is sort of just a your automatic thinking process is always happening. And so when you, when you cultivate a, you know, a mindfulness approach through, through a meditation practice or forever mind, mindful practice, uh, you're changing the way you think. And so you can be skeptical about it going into it, or you can be optimistic thinking this is going to work. Uh, but if you go through the protocol, you actually do it, um, you're more likely to find that it does work. And there were, there were people, obviously, it didn't work for, but on, on average, uh, people got benefit from it. And so it, it's, it's a little bit different than with a psychedelic. And this is a, this is a big criticism in the psychedelic research because the sort of standard model is everything needs a placebo-controlled trial. Well, you can't really do a placebo uh, in psychedelic research because people know they're either tripping or they're not. Yeah. It's um, kind of hard to, to fake that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, to some degree, some of the trials have, have tried, they'll give people like Ritalin uh, or, mm-hmm. some, or something. And if they're, if they're going with people who are drug naive, meaning they've never done a psychedelic, they don't know what it's like to trip. Uh, then they, there might be some sort of blinding effect to that, but they're also like telling people what to expect about it. So if, you know, if they're not actually tripping, they're not seeing things, having visions and, and whatnot, they eventually they, they figure out, okay, I, I didn't get the LSD, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, and it doesn't last as long. And so, uh, it's, it's really difficult to do a, a blind uh, trial in that sense. Um, and then, yeah, what, what you were saying was interesting about the, the shamanism part, too. Um, and, and in a lot of the traditions, uh, the, particularly like ayahuasca traditions, it, it, it was like, like you said, it's the shaman, uh, you know, takes the, the psychedelic and, and does their sort of uh, energetic work under that influence. You know, the, the sort of uh, framework being is that they are accessing the spirit world and can see the the energy surrounding you and do the clearing work that needs to be done uh for you as opposed to our approach was like you take in the medicine and the medicine does things to you uh and in that model it's it's sort of reversed uh in a way um but how those two relate in terms of placebo it's i don't i don't know that i see i think there's not much of a placebo uh effect other than to say that it, you know, it does take some, 
intention to do healing work with these substances, um, you know, which, you know, you've probably heard this said a million times, but, you know, anyone can just like take a bunch of acid at a rock concert and, you know, they don't become enlightened from that, <laughs> um, you know, but, uh, you know, someone who does it with, you know, a, a guided therapist or in a healing ceremony or, or, or that's, I mean, they could even do it alone, maybe in the, in their basement or something, but, uh, to really get benefit from it, it's the intention, uh, you know, set and setting, uh, have a profound influence on, on the benefits that, that come from it. So it's not, it's not just, not just the drug. Yeah. And that, I mean, I, I guess you, you, someone could perceive their benefits, uh, coming from from something other than just the, the drug itself and but i think that's that's what's unique about psychedelics is that it's all about the experience so in a way it doesn't even matter if if you if you took some some uh substance that didn't even have didn't even make you trip and you feel better for it is that because you're having a placebo effect or, or because the experience of going through the emotional effects of expecting, uh, you know, a, a trip and not getting one or, or having a mild one or something, uh, you know, it's, it's the experience is what matters. And that's what's, mm -hmm. it, that's what all the research and the, you know, these substances are, are showing is that it, the experience is the healing. It's not just the drug, you know, the drugs, yeah, they, they cause some, some neuroplastic effects in your brain. And we, we have all these imaging studies that, uh, you know, kind of explain the mechanism uh, of what's going on, but they don't necessarily explain the healing part of it. Uh, and they certainly don't explain why, uh, you know, they have such long lasting effects uh, in, in a lot of people. Yeah. So there's, there's what's going on is, is that you're having a different way to access some, some therapeutic work that's really powerful. I think that's the, the key thing about psychedelic therapies is that they're really about the experience that the person goes through. So Everyone really knows of a case where, you know, they sat down, they maybe were having a hard time and they reflected on their life and they came to some kind of insight. And then that insight led to some action. And then, you know, five years later, you know, they stopped doing this or they started doing that. And it all started from them having kind of like a, a heart to heart with themselves, um, struggling with an issue, maybe having some, some anguish around it and trying to find a solution. Um, so that, that experience actually changes people's lives. Now, when you add in a psychedelic, it's like throwing jet fuel into whatever it seems that insight mechanism is because of how open it puts the mind and how it changes our perspective from the more, they call default mode network, that unconscious way of living to, um, to being conscious where the actual journey that the person experiences through their own mind is what is healing about the experience. It's not uh, necessarily the, the chemical constituents, although there, there is some good um, argument to be made that there are some changes going on in neurochemistry, obviously, because of the mm -hmm. uh, psychedelics effects. And maybe they even have lasting effects on how the brain works, how that all functions. But it's the experience and the realizations that the person has that aren't they're not caused by the psychedelic. They're brought forward by it. Like they might be something that was like deep in the person's psyche that they weren't consciously exploring. Maybe it was like a trauma 
from their past that they didn't even know was bothering them anymore. But then when they enter that psychedelic space, all of a sudden it's like blinders off and there's no way to run from that issue. So they almost like find a way through it. And then what they learn from that experience carries on way after the actual um, trip aspect ends. Um, mm -hmm. So I think it, yeah, it's a good point that experience. Yeah. And, that, and that's going to be, you know, some people's experience and it's not going to be everyone's too. That's right. right. I so mean, some people just take some people rock concert. <laughs> well, yeah, but I, I mean, I even, uh, even in people who are showing up with, uh, you know, to do real therapy work and have good intentions and maybe they get some benefit from it and, uh, and then their depression comes back. Uh, that happens too. Uh, so I, I don't want to overhype these substances too. Like they're, they're uh, some miracle cure that are going to solve all your problems. And then, and then you are just this perfect enlightened being for the rest of your life. You know, they, uh, life is still hard. Integrating the experiences is hard. You know, you have to learn hard lessons um, in, in the process. And, and that's, that's what they're good at doing. And, and, and you know, an analogy I kind of like, uh, for for how how they work and you know you brought up the default mode network but then what the default mode network network does is it sort of is um, well it's res responsible for several things one is thinking about the past and predicting the future right so sort of uh mental time travel is, is the term they use for that um, but it also brings it kind of is the the conduit for sensory perceptions and results in sort of like taking things in a uh, different sense. Like I'm sitting in a chair, I can feel these things. I can smell uh, stuff. It takes, anyway, all these sensations and kind of like constructs uh, an image of the self and how we relate to the world, right? And so with, with all these, these things going on, uh, that can sometimes become really rigid. And so, and you'll notice this if you hang out with enough super depressed or super anxious or obsessive compulsive people is that there's a rigidity to it, to, to their experience. And this isn't, you know, it's not the same as, as someone who's, you know, going through a breakup and they're sad for a while, but people who are, uh, you know, really chronically depressed, uh, they get really stuck in that storyline that they have and every feeling uh, becomes a rumination and, and they might find a story, and I think the human brain is really good at coming up with some rational explanation for our feelings. And I, I, I mean, I'll even share a personal experience with this. I, I went through a divorce uh, several years ago, and uh, after a while, I started uh, taking St. John's Wort uh, to sort of just help me through the winter, basically. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was great. It was super helpful, I, I, although I didn't fully appreciate how helpful it was until I decided to quit cold turkey. <laughs> uh, which I don't, which I don't advise. Uh, I was, I was still in school at the time and didn't know any better, I guess. But, um, anyway, I quit taking it and about a week later, it just like hit me and I just was like irrationally sad. And, uh, you know, I didn't know why I was just like, you know, I'd be, I'd be like crying out of nowhere. And, 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 and the natural thing to do is to come up with a story about why you're sad. And so I, I felt myself going through this process, like, oh, I'm sad because, well, because of my ex-wife, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, well, actually, that's, that's not, it just didn't fit, 
right? And so, and so I, I came, eventually it clicked like, oh, you stopped taking the St. John's war. And it was like the, this, you know, this process of like, oh, sometimes emotions are just the results of, uh, or, or our stories can, can get caught up in the emotions in this sort of weird cycle. Uh, but my, my point in, in saying that is, uh, you know, that we can get stuck in those stories. And then when we have emotions, we get, uh, you know, wrapped up in the story again. And the, the default mode network is sort of what keeps us in those storylines. And so what psychedelics do is they interrupt the default mode network, uh, which is that sense of self. And you, that's why in, in, the, in sort of the psychedelic experience, you lose sense of time and uh, you also like get, you know, in crossing of, uh, of sensory expense experiences and, uh, and, and, and it's sort of a, like a reboot, you know, you come out of that experience and it's like, whoa, that rigid story I was stuck to has just been shuffled around for a bit. Now it might come back in time, but it's been disrupted. That cycle has been disrupted. And now I can start to see things differently. I can start to weave a different story if you do that work, right? Now, if you just do it at a rock concert and you go back to the same routine the next day, maybe you, don't, you didn't accomplish very much. Um, but if, you, if you're doing that in a, in a therapeutic context, it's, it's, like a, it's like a reboot. You know, anytime your computer or your phone starts acting funky, sometimes a reboot like, gets it working again. And that's, uh, that's sort of you know, what psychedelics do really well. Mm. You bring up a fascinating point about the kind of rationalizing process that happens in response to how we feel. And I always find that pretty amazing that my experience of it is that I'll be feeling in a certain mood and then thoughts will come along that are associated with that mood. But when that mood changes, the thoughts are different. So you, it's almost like our minds is trying to interpret our experience, but it's after the fact. Like, mm-hmm. so if one feels that they're having these negative thoughts, it's really easy to just become aware of, oh, it's because I'm in a negative mood and maybe do some kind of uh, self-care practice meditation or some kind of reflection to get out of that mm-hmm. place. And then all of a sudden the thoughts are just positive now. So the thoughts are not really controlled by us, which is really fascinating. Um, Mm -hmm. As somebody uh, who's also interested in Buddhist philosophy, I think that's one of the profound insights of meditation. Uh, Yeah, you're you're right on track with what I was just about to say is anyone who's done enough meditation will have this experience at some point. Uh, where you, you, if you get really good at observing your thoughts, at some point you realize, oh, thoughts just happen. You know, they're like, they're like things that happen to us in a way. And, if, and through cultivating a meditation practice, you get to be just that observer. And uh, that's a, it's a fascinating experience to have and uh, really gives you a, a level of uh, insight and, and objectivity. And, and, and in my experience, it also is like just increased my, capacity for empathy and compassion for people, you know, who uh, really get stuck in, in their story and their feelings, right? And, and if you're not able to sort of take a step back um, and say, you know, there, there is sadness as opposed to I am sadness or I am fear or I am shame or I, I am these things, 
um, when you when you've cultivated that sort of objectivity that comes from being the observer in a meditation state, um, you can just say, okay, this is arising, this is present for me now, but it's not who I am. It's not like where I have to be. It's not mm. where I'm going to get stuck. Uh, and so that's that's really the the goal of of most therapy. Maybe they don't use those those terms um, in the, in the same way, but it's, it's to, to be able to, uh, you know, observe and, and witness, uh, those feelings and not get stuck in them. Mm. Without that distance, that space, we become automatically identified with those thoughts and we actually fall under the spell that it's us thinking them, meaning that there are responsibility and also meaning that, if they're not positive, then that's like our fault somehow. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that's where a lot of suffering comes from, um, in addition to the already existing suffering of the world, is a resistance to that suffering or wishing it was different. Um, for example, everyone's had this experience probably where they're feeling in a down mood and they do everything they can to kind of. Uh, resist it to get out of it. And when they're unable to, they put a lot of blame on themselves and they put even more negative emotion of feeling like, why is this happening to me? Or, you know, I did must have done something wrong and adding all these layers of pain onto something that in and of itself was already, um, already painful. And I think psychedelic therapies are helpful in the sense that they open oneself up to all of that experience. But what's interesting about Mm -hmm. them too is you can have terrible experiences on psychedelics. In fact, that seems to be part and parcel of most experiences, at least for some period of time. Um, Because we don't have the usual, uh, it seems, the defense mechanisms. So when like an anxious thought comes up, when you're just going about your day, we have all sorts of methods for like redirecting the minds, kind of like self-soothing in a way. But when you're in that psychedelic space, it doesn't work. Like the more you push it down, it seems the more it, it comes up. And then that's when the spiral starts of that quote unquote uh, bad trip of resisting your own mental experience, mm-hmm. which adds so much fuel to the fire because you don't actually control much of your mental experience. You don't control like the clouds that move through the sky and that's the the symbol that's given in buddhism for thoughts that they're just clouds that move in the sky and we're trying to you know stop certain ones of them and make other ones yeah you know change yeah so there man there's there's a couple things uh you know to say in response i probably won't remember them all once i get going but <laughs> uh in relating to the you know this this challenging experience you know the quote unquote bad trip mm-hmm. uh is yeah there's there is a need to surrender to the experience to really get a benefit from it. And I've, I've seen uh, people not do that well, um, both in, well, it, particularly in, in my experience with Zendo Project, which is a psychedelic harm reduction tent that, uh, or service that's offered at, at festivals where, where people uh, go through a little bit of training to be uh, sort of sitters, calming presences uh, for people who are going through difficult times and so I did a burning man several years ago and uh yeah you know people come in and and uh, you know a very common story is 
uh, you know, I, I just was in this group of people. I just met them. You know, they offered me some fill in the blank LSDs, mushrooms, MDMA, whatever. Uh, and then, you know, then I started to feel afraid. I started to feel paranoid. I realized I don't know these people very well. I don't know how much I just took. And uh, they start to sort of freak out. And once they've uh, gotten to that, once the fear has come up, then there's a resistance to the experience that comes up and like, no, I don't want to do this anymore. Uh, but there's, there's no eject button. You can get off the ride. There's, there's nothing, there's nothing that really, I mean, you know, you can take a benzodiazepine or something that is, you know, kind of sedating, but it still doesn't really stop the, the experience from happening. Um, you know, so you're just, you're in for it. And, uh, and that's, that's when people show up at, you know, a place like Zenda Project, which is a good thing that it exists, right? Because uh, if they didn't, some people, some people get, you know, pretty obnoxious or scary or threatening uh, sometimes because they feel threatened, right? Um, and this happened at, at, at Burning Man at Zendo. Not, not to me, I wasn't the person who sat through him, but I heard this, this story, this guy who became convinced that his friends had fed him rat poison. They were trying to steal all his things and he was just totally freaking out, right? Uh, and he came back the next day and he was, and, you know, and then that, that group of friends just kind of like dumped him off at Zendo Project. Like, we just want to go dance and have fun or do be silly. Uh, and, and this guy was being a bummer uh, on the road. Yeah, it's accusing um, them of poisoning him. It's like, <laughs> dude, you got to leave the group, man. You're killing the vibe. So, <laughs> yeah. And he, he was like a, he was kind of a big dude. So like if he gets scared, he starts to like scare other people on it, you know, unintentionally. But um, anyway, he comes back the next day and he tells the whole story and he realizes, like, yeah, I just shouldn't have engaged uh with i shouldn't have taken as much as i did i shouldn't have done it with people i wasn't more comfortable with and, and whatever but he was enormously grateful for the safe space that was created for him at, at zendo where he just had a place to kind of chill and, and be kind of just watched by you know a caring presence um but uh more more to the to the point of the challenging experience is that there there was one uh survey based study and there's there's a lot of uh confounding uh issues with this with this research so take it with a grain of salt uh but it, it was done using people who volunteered information i think arrowid or or some other psychedelic uh database type website uh but of of the people who responded to the survey uh, well, it was all of people who had acknowledged having a bad trip, but uh, about 80, I want to say it was 86, 87% of them uh, said that they later viewed that quote unquote bad trip, uh, trip as a really positive experience for them, right? Because what happens is, you know, like the example you gave, uh, you know, maybe some people are confronted with their trauma, trauma they had been suppressing, they've been putting into the back of their mind, they didn't want to deal with it. Um, and now here they were forced to confront it you know uh and and if you resist you know that sort of thing uh it's going to be more and more challenging um the the only good option and the advice we always give people is to just surrender to it be curious about it uh one of, one of the teachers in the cis program says you know you see a skeleton go see if it's ticklish <laughs> you know it's uh you know, because the, the alternative doesn't work. It, to, to try to run away from it doesn't work. And, and it can make things worse, actually. If, uh, if you just resist it the whole time and you just wait to sober up in that state of fear. Um, and plenty of people have had, I mean, I hear this all the time. It's like, oh, I had one bad LSD trip. I'll never do a psychedelic again. Um, 
and you know it's always it's always the case that they they were young and naive and took too much and didn't know the people they were you know there was all these like bad set and settings involved um but those those experiences can be really really fruitful um and they can be somewhat prevented i mean even in a therapeutic setting and you know a safe place with a good therapist or guide or sitter um you know scary things can come up challenging experiences can and do come up um and uh, i mean I, I had one person uh one time who um just wanted to have a, a fun time and what came up was this sort of existential uh, existential dread about the meaningless of, of life you know and uh she didn't want to process that she just wanted to be silly and laugh and uh see you know swirly things in the wall and whatever um and uh but that resistance is like it didn't really go away and 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 that particular instance she chose not to submit to it and let it happen and so a lot of her time she just like really felt nauseous and like it was just kind of a miserable experience for her unfortunately but um it can be useful though uh to submit you know to bring those things in and, and it shows you stuff that's like uh that you didn't know you needed to address you know it may not be the experience you want but it's probably the experience you need uh to really do some some good work Mm. Yeah, the the advice to surrender seems so useful, but so difficult, mm-hmm. actually, because in our day-to-day, we habitually, instinctually recoil from anything negative, any negative feeling, any negative thought. Mm-hmm. We have this feeling of like, no, I don't want to go into that. Um, but in the in the psychedelic state you realize your resistance to the thing does not actually make it go away. And then like your realization of that while you're already in that state, that kind of uh, sets it off on this, on this path of coming to terms with different sufferings that we might not be aware of. Um, Mm -hmm. But what I've found for myself. Yeah. So uh, what I found for myself and seen in, uh, those kind of experiences where at the moment of like greatest terror, when you, when you think, Oh no, I might just be like this forever. Cause that's like the common fear, right? When somebody's in yeah. a bad trip, they think like, well, this is just me now. Like, that's just mm-hmm. what I'm going to be like, I'm just insane now, <laughs> which is a terrifying right. thought to have. Um, but almost in the very second that like the experience is completely surrendered to fully and not just like conceptually, but like, okay, well, this is what's happening. I just have to kind of fully accept it and let it go. Then that experience within seconds can be transformed into like the highest levels of bliss and gratitude and tears and love. And it just shows how close those things are to each other that if we fully experience them without resistance, they have almost their, um, they're opposite. Like the lesson, once it's learned, it shows you something really positive too. But um, so it's interesting when people just get into just a bad trip, because that means probably they, they were resisting it for like six, seven hours straight, which sounds horrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's like, and to bring it back to, uh, you know, Buddhist philosophy too, it's, you know, the Buddha taught that, you know, you can suffer a pain once or twice, you know, and often people suffer twice because there's not only, the, the cause of the pain, the, you know, I think the example we gave was like being 
uh, struck with an arrow, right? You've not only got, you've not only got the arrow, you know, sticking out your arm or whatever. Uh, but there's also the sort of, um, the emotional pain yeah. and suffering. Of like, like, why is oh, this arrow here? It's or, not fair. For me, why do I have this in here? Yeah. Like I'm in pain, like I'm miserable. There, there's all that. And that, and you may not be able to take the arrow out, uh, but you don't have to have the second arrow in, which is the, the sort of existential suffering that you're going through. That, that, that part of it is, is sort of a choice. Uh, and so by accepting that, like, okay, I've got this arrow in me, I've got this pain in my body, or this circumstance I don't like, or this thing I can't change, um, you can accept that, and it can just be what it is, and you can... Um, be more equanimous about it uh or you can you know can really just be wrapped up in your in in a pity party around it which is Mm. is super easy to do uh and it's it's a it's a it's a trap a lot of people fall in and then we we probably all have uh, at some point in our life yeah uh, we've felt the the urge to do that and then what can happen sometimes too is people get really loyal to their suffering. And I see this too in the naturopathic world. And this kind of fits the profile I was talking about earlier with that, that patient who's like really sensitive, the kind of hypochondriac or, uh, or, you know, they have a real legitimate thing too, a uh, health concern, a chronic health condition. Uh, but they get really caught in the story that like, I am, I am someone with chronic pain or I am this person who always suffers or I am mm. or or I've you know someone who's you know had some trauma in their past and they're just like they're always a victim and they have a hard time changing that story because they and, and, and you know it's a defense mechanism to to cope with the stress that put them in that situation originally uh, but then they get stuck and they stay there um, and it can be really hard to get away, away from because we become very loyal to our own suffering. Mm. Um, but that, that's a choice that we can navigate away from. Uh, and, you know, mindfulness uh, meditation is one avenue to do that. Um, and, and psychedelic therapy is another. Mm. And, and regular therapy too. Right. Especially psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. Now that's just, mm. that's just combining all the best things together. Um, that's a that's a really good point that the story is kind of what continues whatever that disease process or that you know negative emotion that continued story and that seems to point towards why psychedelics can potentially be therapeutic is because they almost open um a window of what it looks like if you weren't just like sad old me or like yourself like what is life actually look like when you're there and present and you're not living in a kind of um, story. So that's usually the most um, unpleasant aspect of psychedelic experiences for many people is that sense of ego dissolution where they feel like everything they thought they understood about themselves or who they were becomes very ephemeral and kind of starts slipping away. And then Mm -hmm. that's when that existential fear of um, death annihilation, all that comes in and that big resistance Mm. towards letting that happen because there's no certainty in what's on the other side. But what's on the other side, in in many cases, is actually peace, is actually living in a state where you're not focused on yourself, your problems, but you're actually, you're just there. You're just part of the, you know, experience Mm -hmm. kind of flowing with it. And I think- 
that aspect Same. itself is so therapeutic just to have that one mm-hmm. glimpse of like this is a possible way of living right yeah and it's it's uh it's sort of i think one thing the hindus got right <laughs> which I, i'm not uh, i'm not hindu or anything but uh it's you know everything everything is in cycles of, of mm-hmm. death and rebirth right over and over again and that's i think that's I mean, I think it's true in, in life. And, and what, you know, psychedelics do is they provide you, uh, well, one of, the, one of the many potential experiences you get with psychedelics is one of death and rebirth. Uh, sometimes not all in one session. Sometimes it takes multiple to go through all the, the cycles, but uh, sometimes it does happen that way. And, and to be, yeah. Well, let me, let me just say that uh, Stanislav Grof, uh, you know, who's, a pioneer in this field and uh, has probably done more uh, psychedelic psychotherapy than, than anyone uh, alive right now. Um, he describes the, the perinatal matrices that he, he calls them, uh, which is basically the psychedelic experience follows the, what he describes as four stages of, of labor. Um, so there's the, the, the first state, which is sort of this oceanic bliss. You're just happy in your mother's womb. Uh, right and everything's everything's great um, but you know it's it's dark and it's limiting and and you reach a point eventually where it gets it gets cramped and uncomfortable and then comes the the second stage which is the the beginning of contractions you know and right at that point the cervix isn't open so it's just compression and that's the part where you feel like you're going to die you're just going to be crushed by these contractions that are happening uh, and there's no escape. It's just like, it's dark misery, death, right? Uh, and then the third stage eventually comes, the cervix opens, you're still being crushed. You know, it's still painful. It's still hard, but there's literally a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, and there's some sense that you're going to get through this. Uh, and then finally, the fourth stage is, is delivery, right? You, you come through uh, and you're free. And you're, I mean, that's the rebirth phase, right? And now you're in your mother's arms, uh, but you're also like, you're in a new experience. Now you have to start, you have to breathe with your own lungs and you have to eat food from external sources. You have to put stuff in your mouth and like, there's all, and then, then there's light for the first time, you know, there's, and so life is new. There's all these new sensations that are, that are both scary and, and exciting and, um, and, and so that it's, a, it's a really beautiful, uh, analogy and, and that's, that's what we go through often in a, in a psychedelic experience and, and what we go through in life if we're really open to it. Yeah. That's, it's interesting how typical actually, um, at least the stories uh, I've heard of those kind of death and rebirth processes, how, um, they almost seem to be an aspect of how the psyche heals itself in some sense, just as, mm-hmm the body has a, all these mechanisms for homeostasis, so too does the mind have these mechanisms of when pressure becomes so intense and like adaptation is so necessary to the external environment, it almost has to have some kind of um, experience in it. I wanted to ask you, so um, you do psychedelic integration uh, with with patients. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that is and how that process works? Like, how do you help somebody who's gone through a psychedelic experience, uh, pull that wisdom out of it 
because it's not, although the experience of itself is healing, many of the lessons are kind of forgotten in the sense that they are only real when you apply them in your daily life and actually change those habits of thinking, living, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, just to, just to be clear uh, as well, uh, you know, I don't do any uh, psychedelic work with, uh, with people because they're still illegal. Mm -hmm. Um, But for those people who are going to, you know, use psychedelics anyway on their own, uh, if they want to come talk to me about their experience after afterwards, like maybe the, the day after or something, uh, then I'm, I'm happy to sit with them and uh, or sit on a computer in front of them yeah. <laughs> um, and, and talk to them about what their experience is. And so uh, in, integration is really just, uh, you know, recounting sort of, uh, you know, what happened and, and figuring out what it means to them. You know, and it's it's not uh, it's not sort of an analytical thing where, you know, oh, a snake in in the woods means x x thing. Uh, it's just like helping them decipher by asking lots of uh, questions about, uh, you know, what it, what it represented to them, what their background is, how it felt, that that sort of stuff. Just to to really to to make it a little more impactful, uh, you know, and so that's. And that's what integration is, is it's bringing those experiences and, and learning the lessons we can learn from them and incorporating them into, into, your, into your life. You know, how did, how did you feel in, the, in that moment when that thing happened or you saw that thing or you were outside your body or, or whatever? And, um, you know, how do, we, how do we carry that forward so it's not just a vague memory in a, in a, in a drug-induced moment you had once, but how does this actually change um, or change who you are or or not change it how does it remind you of who you really are at the core or who you're becoming or who you want to be um you know and and how do we how do we like make a plan moving forward uh to make that felt sense a more real sense like presently in your life like today Mm. right because you know when the effects of the psychedelic wear off one is back into the same reality with the same patterns with more of a, a knowledge or an insight of a different way to deal with them, but it still has to be applied. It doesn't necessarily, as you mentioned earlier on, fix all the problems because I mean, the problems are always being generated on top of already existing. So um, mm-hmm. you also um, uh, mentioned to me that, you do uh, ketamine therapies. So I wanted to kind of dive into that topic uh, because I'm not too familiar with uh, ketamine's use as a therapeutic agent. I have heard some interesting things about it being used for really severe depression that doesn't work for anything. Um, rather, other pharmaceuticals, other management doesn't work for it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So what is ketamine therapy and how does it differ from the other psychedelics? Uh, in terms of when they're used in a therapeutic setting, sure. Uh, so, so ketamine was was developed in the '60s. So it was discovered in '62. Went through the FDA process in '63 and got approved. Uh, but it got approved as an anesthetic, a general anesthetic. Um, and the guy who I'm blanking out on his name uh, right now, but the guy who who did the original research on it noticed that okay, this kind of gives people a trippy experience. Uh, but, you know, being in the 60s and 
the uh, pharmaceutical company who you know wanted to patent on it, they didn't want it to be associated with psychedelics, uh, which weren't they weren't using the term psychedelics yet, but a staccato mimetic. Um, they, they didn't want that label thrown on it because because they were afraid of the stigma um, or the, just the associations in general. And so they came up with uh, this term dissociative anesthetic, um, which at high doses, uh, it makes you completely dissociate, which is why it's useful for surgery or something. If you're going to get some real invasive procedure you don't want to be conscious for or don't want to experience the pain of, you get ketamine. Um, and so it became really popular during the Vietnam War. It was known as a buddy drug because a medic could just like carry it around, pop it in, uh, you know, and, and you, were, you were good to get back to the hospital or whatever. Um, and so now it's, it's international standard drug used everywhere. It's very safe. It's used in pediatrics and uh, it's used in animals and it's used in, uh, in a lot of settings. It's a very useful uh, drug. Um, but what they found over time was that uh, people who were using ketamine for other reasons, every so often someone who is depressed, their depression would go away for about a week at a time when, you know, after their surgery. And, and, and they also noticed um, that people were occasionally reporting uh, these sort of trippy experiences Um or a re-entry phenomenon, they call it sometimes, after the, the, the anesthesia was, was uh, kind of wearing off, say, like after a surgery or something, um, as they were becoming more and more conscious, they, they would reach basically a serum level of ketamine in their blood, which was more in that psychedelic range, right? Because real high, it just knocks you out. Um, real low, it's just kind of a mild pain relief. But then somewhere in the middle, uh, it'll, it'll give you like the psychedelic experience. Um, and for, for the unprepared, these were sometimes really scary um, because, they, you know, they're psychedelics. They don't know they're going to happen. Sometimes, you know, people have uh, like, you know, like all the things we've talked about up to this point, it can, you know, their demons get released. <laughs> um, and if you're not ready for that, then uh, it's not so good. And so, uh, but they, they started to do a little bit more research on it. And in the, in the 90s, the National Institute of Health, part of the NIH, uh, or the the National Institute of Mental Health, excuse me, part of the NIH, um, said, "Hey, let's research this as uh, a psychiatric medication." And so they did a bunch of clinical trials for for people who were depressed, and uh, but their approach was to do it basically the same way they do it for surgery, which is they just put an IV of ketamine in you, um, you sit there till it's done dripping, and then you go home, basically. Um, I mean, you sit there until you're you know. It, you're not, you know, tripping or something, but, uh, but your depression goes away for about a week at a time. And they said, yep, that works. And, but at that point it was no long, it was off patent. And so there wasn't much money to be made, um, from the, from the pharmaceutical companies. So it kind of just, it never even went through the full FDA process to be approved for that use. And so what has happened is, uh, over time, basically, uh, doctors, mostly in private practice, have, you know, no, have, that have known about that use uh, have been opening ketamine clinics up uh, ever since, uh, offering it for treatment-resistant depression. And people, that, that's what they do. They just come in, they get an IV of ketamine uh, on a semi-regular basis, and their depression temporarily leaves them. Uh, but it always comes back. Mm. And... Uh, Somewhere along the lines, and I forgive me for not knowing the names off the top of my head, um, 
but people said, hey, what if we, we did this in a more psychedelic therapy model and they do it like they do any other psychedelic therapy. You have the experience and then you have uh, counseling kind of before and after and, um, and they found that to be really useful. Uh, and then there's also, you can even modify the dose a little bit uh, within that psychedelic range where on one you have sort of the real trippy uh, end of things, you know, where we talk about the K-hole, uh, which is people having uh, really deep spiritual psych- psychedelic like experiences. And then there's more of a, what we call a psycholytic dose range, which is a smaller dose where people are still able to sort of con- be conscious and report uh, what's going on. And so you can do um, therapy under the influence of ketamine and do it sim- more similar to like maybe how MDMA is done where it's sort of more empathogenic uh, and you can, you can talk and without sort of the, the, the fear that might come up when discussing a trauma or whatever. Um, and so those are, those are sort of the different models that are, that are used uh, for ketamine therapy. And, and uh, certainly since all of this um, research has been kind of blown up in, in the in media and in culture recently uh, around psychedelics in general, a lot of people have been saying, well, hey, ketamine's already legal. Um, you know, it's, a, it's an off-label use, which means it's not, a, it's not technically approved by the FDA for the treatment of depression or, or anything uh, for that matter. It's just an anesthetic. Um, but it's a Schedule Three substance. So any provider who can uh, prescribe a Schedule Three substance, uh, just like any other drug, uh, they can use it off-label. Uh, which means they can they can they can write it for whatever reason that provider sees fit, um, and so a lot of people are doing that. That it also means insurance companies do not cover it uh, when it's uh, written off label. So uh, that's why uh, a lot of people are uh, you know following the the first ketamine model I mentioned, which is you just kind of show up and and get an IV for a while. Uh, because then you just keep coming back for the drug and that's a good business model. And the ketamine itself is super cheap. It's like maybe two to $4 per dose. Uh, it's very cheap, but you have to pay for the professional's time. Right. And you know, all the other expenses that come with, you know, a professional running a, a clinic, the costs of, of running mm-hmm. business and whatnot. Um, but then, uh, then, you know, Jensen Pharmaceutical, uh, which is owned by Johnson and Johnson, said, "Hey, we want to get in on this." And so they they started developing Spravato, which is uh, S-ketamine. So ketamine is a racemic molecule, meaning there's sort of two mirror image versions of it. Kind of if you think of like your left and your right hand, um, if you lay you know one on top of the other, you got thumbs pointing two different ways, mm-hmm. but otherwise they're they're sort of mirror images of, it, of each other. Well, in the same way, ketamine has an R and an S version. Uh, and so they, they decided, they, they found a, a way to, and this is a super common play that pharmaceutical companies use. They take some drug that they already know works and they just say, hey, we'll take half of it. And or we'll, they'll patent it and then they'll patent the other half later. Or they'll find some slight variation where it's basically the same thing, but it's technically slightly different and get a patent on it. So anyway, they, they did that with ketamine. And so uh, Spravato is just, it's just S-ketamine. It's one half of the molecule. And they put it in this little nasal spray. And they went through the hoops of getting approved through the, through the FDA to treat um, 
treatment-resistant depression. And so uh, if, you, if you jump through all the insurance company's hoops, you can, uh, you, can get, um, you can get Spirato treatment and it is covered by insurance. Now it's insanely expensive uh, uh, for Spirato without uh, where it's uh, something like, uh, I wanna say like six, $700 per dose. Um, and in their wow. protocol, you're doing that twice a week, every week, uh, indefinitely until, until you decide to do it less often. That's but the model, the model is to continue doing it. Maybe you do it once a week and then you do it every other week or something. Uh, but there's only two dosing options, 56 or 84 milligrams. Um, and you, you can get sort of, and I've, I've done it a little bit with a few patients and you can get sort of, uh, you can get a little trippy on it. Uh, but it's not, it's not a strong psychedelic experience. Um, in, in my approach, I, I tried to kind of maximize that. So I, I did, uh, you know, I had them wear a blindfold. We did sort of integration like work around it. Uh, I had a psychedelic music playlist going um, and uh, you know, to try to really get the, get the, the most out of it. And, and it worked really well uh, actually in the, in the couple of patients I've used it in. Uh, I've had one patient it didn't work so well in. Uh, we didn't, give it a, a maybe enough time to really work uh but it may have just not been a good fit for that patient but um but the other the other hang up about it is that uh the insurance model does not want to pay providers for the time that they spend doing it uh so they they cover the medication which is like i said super expensive so they don't want to pay for it and they um they they put up a lot of barriers to to covering it at all uh, which means a lot of administrative costs. Of, I mean, you're just faxing documents like crazy and uh, th- no provider wants to be doing that, uh, spending their time <laughs> on a fax machine. Um, so that that's part of it sucks. But uh, but it seems to work well. Uh, but um, you, it's also a two-hour visit because the, the ketamine lasts about an hour and a half, the, the sort of... Uh, um, dissociative effects of it but they 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 say it's a full two hours patients aren't allowed to drive uh afterwards and you have to measure their their blood pressure three times during the visit um it does cause a slight increase in blood pressure so you want to have someone who's uh, well managed uh, blood pressure um you know it bounces up you know maybe 10 15 points or something under the influence of, of ketamine um but the, you know they, they only like you know, will cover the insurance usually will only cover, a, you know, the equivalent of a 15 minute appointment. Uh, so you can't, you can't do one-on-ones with people two hours at a time if you're only getting paid for 20 uh, minutes. So, you know, you can do it in groups, you can find other ways to do it, but uh, you don't really have time to get into deep, you know, psychedelic psychotherapy type work with Spravato. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I say all that just to say, you know, to give it a, a fair shake, it is helpful. Um, and, you know, the clinical trials show that. There's, there's more I could go into about uh, the criticisms of some of those clinical trials. There, there, was, uh, there is reason to be a little bit skeptical that we got a little better picture of Spravato than is necessarily the God's truth, so mm-hmm. to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it's, it seems to be safe uh, at, worst it seems to be safe mm-hmm. and uh and it works well um so do you uh do you see a future where uh, me- mental health practitioner psychiatrists use uh psychedelic therapies for uh, various conditions and maybe 
even use certain psychedelics for this condition and a certain other one for that one and a certain one for this issue, kind of like mm-hmm. they do with uh, SSRIs and antidepressants in general. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, we'll get we'll get to a point. In fact, I have uh, I have one colleague who's a retired therapist to uh, kind of follow around. We, we in fact, I talked to him earlier today. Uh, who he he's a fan of saying that you know someday it'll be it'll be malpractice to not use these substances <laughs> on people because they, I, because they're really effective. Not no, it's not for everybody, right? And there are certainly conditions that they will not be indicated for. Um, but they, they are extremely helpful and, and they each have their sort of different, uh, you know, their different experiences between the different substances. So, um, I mean, the, you know, the clinical trials right now, it's like MDMA for PTSD, uh, psilocybin for depression. Uh, but I, I don't think it, need, it will necessarily always be as narrow as this substance, you know, for that, that condition. Um, I, th- I think you could, you could certainly treat uh, PTSD with psilocybin and you could certainly treat, you know, depression with MDMA and, and any way you, you kind of mix and, and match it uh, around. What's really probably more important is the therapeutic relationship uh, with your therapist, this sort of, you know, again, the set and setting uh, matters a lot. Um, and th- that being said, uh, you know, I, I also do think that like, yeah, with certain patients, I, I might go more toward this substance, not so much based on uh, what their specific diagnosis is. Oh, that's probably the most important factor. Um, but also like what their personality is like, what their, um, their sort of anxiety about being in an altered state of consciousness is, mm. you know, I may not start with, uh, you know, a strong dose of LSD for someone's first ever experience, you know, cause that's, that can be a bit much. Um, for some people, ayahuasca is, uh, is, you know, indicated when I, when I get sort of the sense that someone really needs to, to purge. That's part of this the ayahuasca experience is a lot of people physically vomit, um, or, uh, but I mean, the purge can come in other forms, uh, crying or, or whatever. Um, but there, there's this sort of releasing that it's, this is a very common experience, not, a, you know, always there, but, um, you know, and some people, you know, for people who are going through like grief, you know, maybe, uh, from a death or a divorce or, or some reason, um, you know, it's, it's great for that, but it doesn't mean that you can't, uh, treat anything with any of these substance substances so um yeah it'll come down to experience and 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 more research obviously it's still it's still very early days for for this research and there's still a lot of questions that remain Mm -hmm. and uh yeah my my biggest question so if it ever does become legalized i know there's um what is it? The IP 34 movement mm-hmm. in Oregon. There's also the IP 44, which are uh, the IP 44 is uh, decriminalizing basically all drugs and IP 34 is specifically having uh, psilocybin therapies as mm-hmm. a legal approach um, with practitioners who have to learn a certain program or something like that uh, to go through with it. Um my biggest concern with the therapies is they have a tendency to spark things. So especially when you're working with uh, like a mental health population, 
the biggest question is like, how do you know that the therapy will be helpful for that person and not make it worse for them? Because I guess that's the biggest worry with the psychedelics is they can put you in a bad spot and somebody who's already in a bad spot. So what's, what's your take on that, on how uh, practitioners would go about selecting whether or not, you know, this patient seems like a good fit. This one might be a little bit too high risk. Um, Mm -hmm. And those kind of considerations, like if somebody was in a psychotic episode, you obviously can't like do psychedelics. That's just a terrible idea. Or even if somebody's in like a manic episode, manic depression or something like that, Mm -hmm. Um, or if they're severely suicidal. I mean, there's a lot of these, um, these uh, considerations when you really take the psychedelic therapies to that kind of psychiatric level where it's, it would be used at like a psychiatric hospital or something like that. Um, So what, what is that? What would that be helped? Um, buy for you is that more like set and setting things or patient selection yeah well there's there's a couple of things uh to be said that one is that yeah it is a concern right and at some point something bad is going to happen <laughs> i guarantee it just as uh as these substances get used more and more frequently as uh as become as they become legal there's legal pathways to do it uh, eventually somebody is going to, uh, you know, run out of a therapy room and run into traffic or something, you know, uh, it's going, something like that's going to happen. Um, and, uh, it'll be a setback for all of us, but, uh, you know, those sort of things happen now. They, they happen a lot. And, uh, the, the rather, uh, small risk I think is, is worth the pretty great reward uh, for what these therapies have to offer. Um, but yeah, it is a concern and, you know, specifically with, uh, you know, IP 34 here in Oregon, uh, which would create these psilocybin service centers, there will be, you'll create basically a separate board, uh, that will create criteria for people who want to be psilocybin therapists, basically. Um, and the, the criteria is that those people don't necessarily have to be professional therapists or doctors or anything. They can just get this certification basically with a coming from as little as a high school diploma, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, they'll, they'll get fully educated on, you know, the, the contraindications and whatnot, but the enforcement of that, I mean, that's always can be subtle. I mean, I, I, I mean, I'm a fairly well-trained physician and I, I'll have patients who, you know, they won't tell me until their third visit that they're hearing voices or that, uh, oh, by the way, I've, I was diagnosed with bipolar a long time ago and I don't take my meds. And, um, you know, because people, they don't like the labels of these, you know, of, of stuff. And so it can be hard to screen for them. You just, you only have so much time in, in an office visit to ask every possible question out there. Um, and so you're, you're kind of a little bit at, at a patient's mercy uh, to, for them to tell you really the most pertinent information and, and certainly you could, you need to be diligent and, and screen for, for the, you know, the big stuff. And certainly if you're doing psychedelics, you would, you would screen for things like bipolar and, and schizophrenia or any form of psychosis and whatnot. But um, yeah, so, so there's, there's the need to be really careful about it. I think, um, you know, there's, there's these two, well, there's more than two, but there's, there's multiple discourses uh, as to where we should go 
with psychedelics. And, you know, the one, one discourse is that uh, it's sort of the, the cognitive liberty um, approach that we should all have access to whatever state of consciousness we want and any tools necessary to achieve those states. And, um, you know, these, these substances in various forms have always been with us. You know, they evolved with us, um, probably before us in, in some cases. Um, and right now we're in, a, we're in an era of our civilization where we don't, we've, we have hid them and repressed them for so long that we aren't familiar with them. We don't have this sort of uh, maturity as to how to deal with these substances in an appropriate way. And so if it just became, everything became legal tonight, uh, you know, probably a lot of people uh, are going to go hurt themselves doing it. Uh, especially when when there's so much good media uh, on on these substances now, everyone with any sort of mental health complaint is going to th- think, "Well, I can just go do some psychedelics, and things are going to get better." And then they're not going to get better for everybody, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, on their own. And so there's there's a case to be made, um, you know, that just complete liberal de- decriminalizing could could hurt a lot of people. I, I think it, my personal opinion is that that's where we should eventually go with it. Um, because I, I, I do believe that uh, nature should never be criminalized. It, it's kind of absurd that we can uh, decide that something that grows out of the earth should, should be illegal. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's just, it's sort of mind boggling that we, we even a, attempt to, construct a social paradigm around laws like that but um but nonetheless that's that's currently the way things are uh and then how long it takes to get there how how do we mature as a culture around around these sort of things i don't have super good answers uh, for that other than to bring them out into the open and to talk about them and to do more research and and to have uh encourage you know more responsible use of them um and you know nothing ever gets good by hiding it. You know, uh, just just like on an emotional level, if there's something you're ashamed of, uh, the cure to shame is to expose it. You know, tell someone about it. And, you know, and maybe not the whole world, maybe not everybody, not someone who's going to use it against you. But um, you know, you, you talk about it, and then then once it's out in the open, it it doesn't it can't rot inside of you anymore. Mm. Um, and in the same way, uh, hiding and repressing psychedelics uh, has not really done us any good. It's created more ignorance around them. Um, mm-hmm. and, and as a result, it's, it's been used to harm a lot of people. And, you know, the war on drugs, to, to go on a little bit of a tangent here, uh, it, was, it was largely a war on, on black people in America um, and, uh, and other, you know, groups and, and ways of thinking that, uh, the people in power wanted to repress. And, and so there, there's uh, a lot of negative associations uh, around these substances for that reason. And, and they persist. This, and then a lot of people are, are ignorant of that link uh, just because they don't know the history of it. I mean, I mean, there's, maybe you've heard it, but there's this, I have, yeah. you know, the, the, the tape of Nixon saying, you know, how do we, <laughs> I forget exactly what he says, but uh, it's, I mean, they're talking about locking up basically uh you know black people and the hippies yeah people they who did want to participate in the vietnam movements. war and and that was yeah. the way to do it you can't 
you can't criminalize free speech in any form, but all these yeah. people seem to have one thing in common and it's drug use. So we'll make yeah. that illegal and we can lock up all these people. Cannabis particularly. Yeah. Right. Which is interesting because ca- cannabis was used um, medicinally for, for quite some time, actually. Uh, the eclectic physicians and earlier physicians who used herbs in, uh, in addition to pharmaceuticals, they used like cannabis tinctures. They used cannabis preparations all the time. It was just... It was just another thing in the formulary. It wasn't even anything that particularly interesting to them, uh, although it had a lot of efficacy for the things it was used for. Um, yeah, these things will come in cycles. I mean, that's just, that seems to be how history repeats itself. <laughs> yeah. In, in one form or another. And, and right now we're sort of in a, in a renaissance where these things are coming back. And, and yeah, hopefully, hopefully we'll develop good ways to, to use them. And the, the other part... Uh, the other approach, the other discourse on it is sort of uh, this medical model, right? Which is to say, uh, we don't trust the general public with these things. We don't, we don't trust the general public with their own minds and uh, what they're capable of. So we'll leave it in the hands of professionals only. And they'll be the gatekeepers of these magical substances. Kind of like a monopoly and, on it. Uh, sort of, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, there, part of that is is a... I mean, there's two sides to that coin as well. On the one hand, it's it's legitimate in the sense that um, we do need someone with who can diagnose contraindications to these things and like knows better and can and can help people navigate these experiences and uh, and use them for maximum therapeutic benefit. Uh, and then the other side of that, there's also like a lot of people. Uh, you know, chomping at the bit to, to find ways to make money on that because that's the society we live in and how, how do we exploit these things to, for, for profit? Uh, and it's, it's, I mean, there's, there's companies that have been created. There's people working on this, uh, you know, and it makes me a little bit nervous. Uh, I don't know exactly how they would go about doing it uh, because you can't, you can't put a patent on, on nature, but you can, uh, I mean, e- e- this is even a legitimate criticism of maps itself. Uh, you know, they're, they're getting a patent on their MDMA treatment protocol. So for, I think it's five years, for five years, no one else will be able to do MDMA therapy, at least not the way they're doing it, except for those who have gone through their training program. Um, and, and, you know, is, is that right? I mean, they, they, they're putting in a ton of money to get the research out there and it's only five years and they just are trying to recoup maybe some of their, uh, their, you know, costs and expenses and, and whatever. So I, it's, you know, I want to be fair um, and, you know, knowing how the world actually works and, and money makes the world go round. So they say, um, you know, but I, I'm just nervous that, uh, you know, corporate interests will come in and, and corrupt this whole thing. Uh, and I, I hope that doesn't happen. I don't think it, it really, it ultimately could, uh, or at least it, it couldn't get much worse <laughs> than the way it's been, you know, because mushrooms will always grow. Right. You, you can't, you can't stop them. You can't really effectively stop people from growing them uh, or from making ayahuasca or, I mean, or, I mean, for that matter, you can't really shut people down from making MDMA and LSD even. Uh, you know, those things have been around forever. I mean, I I don't know firsthand, but apparently they're not terribly difficult to make. Uh, the recipes are out there and, 
people can make them uh and they they will whether they're legal or not not. that's that's Um, the whole argument against the war on drugs is like was it Mm -hmm. even effective for what it was trying to do right probably not 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 so much (laughs) so you know it's i don't know i kind of feel pulled in in multiple directions i think ultimately we need uh responsible legalization Mm -hmm. and for me personally uh i feel really called to help people who need help the most uh, in, in the mental health world. And so I, I don't really want to treat a bunch of psychonauts who just want to become one degree more enlightened. Uh, I really want to help the people who, uh, are really can't find a solution to their depression or get over their trauma. Um, and who just want something to, that works. Those are the people I want to help. Um, and, uh, I almost prefer them to not have uh, a psychedelic experience because, um, sometimes that uh that can work against you a little bit um but yeah so i mean i just want to help you and so like as a as a clinician i feel fairly certain that i'll I'll find a path to do that uh, you know whether these become legal in one way or the other um but if that's not the ultimate uh best for mm-hmm. for society that's that's debatable yeah and they're you know they're a great tool but of course, there's always so many different methods. Uh, there's always that kind of argument, even within those psychonaut um, enlightened circles of, well, you know, meditation is the truest path because it's more lasting. It's not just transient and it's something that you do on your own. And then there's the other aspect that comes more out of um, shamanism and that those uh, substances are tools to to teach you that. So regardless of what happens, there's always some way to, to help the mind and get that discovery with a substance or without. Um, that's why it's interesting in the, the history of shamanism, there's certain cultures that never really use substances and others that almost exclusively only use substances for their um, shamanic healing work. So where can, uh, where can people find you? And uh, what's your website? Yeah, so I've got uh, drmatthewhicks.com. Uh, that's uh, is up and live uh, right now. And I'm also, like I said, developing this, this ketamine clinic, and that's going to be called uh, Synaptic. And so the uh, we haven't built cool the name. website. Yeah, thank you. Uh, we haven't built the website yet, but the, the web address is going to be synaptic.care. Uh, so that'll be up uh, here soon. Uh, and then I have my own podcast called In- Integrative Psychiatry Review, where I talk about all, all things mental health. Um, certainly, there's several episodes on uh, psychedelics in there. And uh, yeah, that's where, that's where I'm available. Excellent. Uh, well, there you have it, Dr. Matthew Hicks. Thank you for the conversation. I always love uh, talking about psychedelic therapies. I think there's really a future in this, and I'm so excited to see... Uh, all the research that's moving towards it and just the general acceptance that's starting to spread where it's becoming less of a taboo subject. I even saw um, Mm -hmm. a Netflix movie, uh, which was basically stories of different comedians talking about their psychedelic trips and Mm -hmm. celebrities. What is it called? Like thanks for tripping or something like that. Yeah. I don't remember the title, but I watched it. Uh, Yeah. It's it's pretty funny. Yeah. Right. And it was, it was light, but it was also had some good uh, information in it, but it made me very happy because when I was watching it and I saw that it was like number eight or something that day on Netflix, I was like, 
Mm-hmm. This is something is changing. Like something in the air yeah. is changing that some, uh, a movie basically just about psychedelics and people using them is top 10 mm-hmm. in the whole country. So mm-hmm. that's where it's moving. And um, Oregon will probably be one of the first places. I mean, we tend to be pretty, uh, pretty progressive when it comes to um, things of that nature, especially with, you know, recreational cannabis and everything. So it's probably just a matter of time. Um, but I think who knows what will happen. Maybe it will be like, there'll be like a psilocybin tablet and, you know, it'll be patented and then they'll have that whole model in insurance. Um, but as you said, those medicines are part of nature and they grow everywhere and you can patent it all you want, but it's still, you know, going to be there to some extent. So um, right. the medicine's always there for people to make their own choices with their life, you know? Um, so thank you for being on the uh, Herbal Hour podcast. And I would, I would love to actually have you on again to talk more. I'm very fascinated in mental health in general. So uh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it was, it was fun. Thanks for having me.